0: Imagine a gold ring bearing a cluster of bright diamonds. It's been said that each chapter in the book of Romans is like one of those diamonds on that ring. But the very central diamond, the largest one, which shines the brightest, is Romans chapter 8. I once heard a preacher say that... uh, If ever, perhaps, in in a state of persecution, uh, he was forced to just take one chapter out of his whole Bible, Uh, it would be Romans chapter 8 that he took with him. It's a most amazing portion of God's Word. It begins with no condemnation in verse 1. It ends with no separation In verse 39, just that thought can keep you going all week. No condemnation. No separation. Well, they're the two bookends, if you like. In verse 1, in verse 30, 33, Paul reminds us of our justification. Justification. He's going to remind us of our sanctification. And then as he draws towards the the end of the the chapter, he's going to talk about our glorification. (coughs) He's going to talk about union with Christ, verse 1. Liberation in Christ, verse 2. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, verse 9. Regeneration and being born born anew, verses 10 and 11. Putting to death sin verse 13. Adoption, verse 15. Assurance, verse 16. Our inheritance with Christ, verse 17. Future glory, verse 18. The intercession of the Holy Spirit, verses 26 and 27. The providence of God, verse 28. The foreknowledge of God, verse 29. Predestination, verses 29 and 30. The effectual calling of God, And he concludes with our eternal security. What a chapter. If you can get to grips with this chapter, sink your heart and mind deep into this chapter and have this chapter sink deep into you. You have, just in this one portion of the Bible, so much of what you need to know so much of what is yours to experience daily as a Christian believer right here. It is the brightest of diamonds indeed. And Paul brings to a summary in some respects as he opens up this chapter all of the things that have been covered so far. And one of the very noticeable things is that You remember how last week at the end of chapter 7, as Paul is talking about this inner battle that Christians face, it's all about me, myself and I in those verses. He moves to speak about the Spirit of God. It's all dominated by the Spirit. From verses 1 to 27, 19 times the Spirit of God is mentioned. And this Spirit, the Spirit of God, this... Third person of the Godhead. He's described variously as the spirit of life, verse 2. The spirit of God, verses 9 and 14. The spirit of Christ, verse 9. The spirit of adoption, verse 15. This is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself. The spirit is not a thing or an it or an entity or a force. He is a he himself. And it's due to the work and power of this person of God within us that you and I can and must make progress as Christians and make progress in this battle that we were thinking about last week. At the end of chapter seven, I wonder, have you known anything of that battle this last week? If you did, did you engage in it? Maybe you're still wondering how. Well, that's why you need chapter eight. Paul is going to teach us so clearly how and why Christians may engage in this battle. And so we're going to look this evening at verses 1 to 4. And we're going to consider these verses under three headings. The first is this. Union with Christ. Second, life in the Spirit. Third, originating from the Father. Union with Christ. Life in the Spirit. Originating from the Father. So, union with Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18, we read these words. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things But there is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do you think this, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, 623, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And what about this inner battle? What about this inner turmoil that sometimes we feel just like Paul did? What if the thing that's upon your heart and mind is what we read in chapter 7, verse 19? The good that I will to do, I don't do it. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. But... Still, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now the Greek word that Paul actually employs here in this particular instance is not actually dealing exclusively with God's judgment over us but also speaks of the continual enslaving power of sin which once kept us in that place of judgment. So here's someone in prison, committed of crimes and sentenced, but in prison continues to commit criminal acts, and so keeps on being taken back to the courtroom and has his sentence added to. And... Everything's just going from bad to worse. This, this whole cycle is just repeating, repeating, repeating. He, he's guilty, condemned, and judged, and sentenced, and still goes on committing all of these great crimes and is, goes through all of that judicial process all over again. And the sentence is just going on and on and on, completely unable to break out of this awful cycle. Well, that was us in our sins, before and until God intervened in the Lord Jesus Christ. That whole position and cycle of our condemnation in our sinfulness has been broken if you are in Christ Jesus. Now you will still have the struggles of chapter 7. But none of that changes this truth, and this now is the key to understanding how you can win those battles that you face. Indeed, winning those battles is assured if you take heed to these truths. There's no promise that the battles will cease this side of heaven, but they may be won, And this is how and this is why. And Paul will explain it to us. But you must be in Christ. These truths are for those who are in Christ Jesus, who know him and love him as Savior and Lord. Do you recall we saw uh, last week in the morning in Matthew chapter 7 the plight of false teachers And of many more who had mistakenly believed that they were Christians. Well, we can say one thing for certain. None of them were in Christ. That was what they lacked. That's why Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You've never been part of me. You've never been in me. I've never been in you. When God awakens your dead soul to the wonders of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he causes you to weep over your sin and to glory in Christ as you run to him for salvation, as you claim him at the cross as Savior and Lord, to find life as you look at the crucified one, to receive assurance in the very core of your being, and we'll consider that later in this chapter. That's the work of the Holy Spirit assuring us that God is our Father and I am His child despite everything about me. Your sins are forgiven, Your, God accepts you as His child, and it's all His free gift of grace. This remarkable leaves you lost for words. Union takes place between the sinner and the Lord Jesus Christ through the working of His Spirit who He sends. You are in Him or you are not. You become bound up in Him. Everything that is true of Christ in His death and his resurrection, God the Father also sees being true of you because you are in him. You died with him. And in exactly the same way, everything that was true of you in all your sin, God the Father saw in Christ as he hung on the cross. By grace, through faith in believing You, Christian, are in Christ. And it is for you that these truths have been recorded that you may know. And if there's any here and you know the reality is that this evening you are not in Christ. Well, just please keep listening. And see what it is that God can do for you and in you by his grace, his free gift of salvation, which is offered to all who will come. It's on account of these things, you see, that Paul will say that for him to live is Christ. He'll say, when Christ, who is our life, appears. In most other religions, in all other religions, there's there's this disconnect between me and God. There is always that which separates me from God in other religions. And it's up to me to do as much as I can to somehow try and narrow the gap. So that maybe, maybe, I just might find that one day I'm close enough to Make the leap, and make it across. The only other kind of idea that you find is that all of us, all, we're already part of the being of God. Remember, uh, Terry Johnson mentioned on this, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. That's called pantheism. That actually, all of us were all just part of God anyway, in some sense. Uh, well, if that's true, none of us have any need of a savior, do we? But what God reveals in the Bible discredits all of these other thoughts and ideas completely. We are condemned sinners, held fast under the tyranny of sin, in desperate need of that salvation that we can never produce for ourselves. But God has done it for us. And he does it by uniting us to Christ. We were crucified with him, buried with him. With him, raised with him, live with him, in him, through him, and all because we were loved and chosen by him. And in Christ, in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. But if you, if you don't know Christ like this, you can have no participation in this assurance, at least not yet. And indeed, you are still lost in your sins. You are still utterly condemned. Now, for those who are in Christ, there's something practical in your life which must accompany this. And it's seen in the second half of verse 1 and on into chapter two, uh, verse 2 those who now are set free from condemnation are not only in Christ, they are also those who no longer walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. Do you see that in verse 1? Those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk According to the flesh. That's not an optional extra. That's part and parcel of being in Christ Jesus. No longer walking according to the flesh. Because that is part of the saving work that God does in you, in your salvation. That old link, that old domination of sin is broken. And you are changed. You are transformed. You now have not life according to the flesh, but life according to the Spirit. You have life in the Spirit. And this produces in you unmistakable traits and characteristics. In the Christian, there is this new governing principle or regulation. That's really what is meant by The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Once there was this governing, regulating principle in my life which was the principle of sin and death. And it controlled me. It had a stranglehold on me. It had this grip on me. And I could not break free. But in Christ that's changed. That's gone. And now I have this new regulating, governing principle in my life, which is the spirit of life in Christ. It used to be your old sinful nature which held sway in your life. It was the the dominant governing principle which regulated everything you did. It governed your thought life. It governed your desires. It governed your ambitions. It directed your lusts. It moved you to act in all kinds of ways to satisfy those lusts. But a greater power now has entered in when you are in Christ Jesus. God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence within you. A new life springs up within you. New life in Christ, and it's by the real and actual presence of Christ's Spirit within you. That's how God does this. And so you now have this new governing principle which is directing you towards godliness and holiness and righteousness. The Spirit brings the word of God to bear upon your heart and to bear upon your mind and to bear upon your conscience. And he prompts you and he moves you. And this is what produces that inner battle and turmoil that Paul knew all about, that he talks about in the end of chapter 7. It's the work of the Spirit within you that enables you to, to gain the upper hand, we might say, over that which resides still in you, that presence of sin, as we talked about it last week. But now, with the work of the Holy Spirit within you, you are able to take that battle on and to gain the victory. And this is a glorious thing that God does. And there's no separation here, you'll you'll see, between Christ and his Spirit. It's not the case that you rely on Christ for your salvation and then Jesus somehow kind of hands you over to the Spirit who then starts to lead you on in his own unique way. No, no, the work of the Spirit is to impart to you the life of Christ. He is the Spirit of Christ. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus talks about the helper whom the Father will send. He will abide with you to dwell in you, to be in you. Jesus said, my Father will love him and we will come to him. We will come to her, the sinner who is being saved and converted. We will come to him, to her, and make our home in him. God residing in you, in the person of his spirit. This is the spirit's work. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. And Again, watch out for this stark contrast that he draws here according to which of these two governing principles are dominant in your life. This is Galatians chapter 5 from verse 16. He says this, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and it's a capital S, the Spirit of God who's in you, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You've been set free from the the law's condemnation. The works of the flesh, well, they're evident, Adultery, fornication, uncleanness and so on. Typical big long list that Paul gives of all of these different types of sins which take hold of us. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy and peace, long-suffering gentleness, goodness and faith, meekness and temperance against such things There is no law. So how's the evidence looking in your life? How's the evidence stacking up in my life? If you do not have the spirit of life in Christ, then you do not have that which you need in order to overturn and overpower the law of sin and death. If you do have the spirit of life in Christ, surging through your soul, then the evidence will be there because he has set you free from the former governing, regulating principle that was at work within you. But if you are a Christian, is not now. It isn't. The spirit of life in Christ is in you. That's what's taken hold of you. Some of you perhaps wonder at just how much of a victory the Spirit of God is having within you. Yet, here you are, a worshipping believer amongst the Church of Christ, convinced in your heart about these truths. You might not fully understand them, you might have to confess that they haven't fully yet taken hold of you the way they should, but you know this is the truth. And being convinced of these truths, you lament that you haven't grown more, done more, been more faithful, been more fearless. But you do know that you belong to Christ. You do have that assurance in your heart because that's the Spirit's work. And yet despite all of those anxieties, all of those worries, all of those doubts, you have grown. You are growing and serving many of you in all kinds of different ways. And despite all of those anxieties and despite all of those worries and despite all of those doubts, you know it's right and good to be here amongst the Lord's people this evening, don't you? You do. Even if it was a struggle to get here. Whether it was a struggle to get here on time, whether it was a struggle to get here at all. But you know. You know it's right and good to be here. Because you're not governed by that old principle anymore and even if you know that your heart isn't always in it as it should be even if you know that your mind isn't always engaged on Christian things and on gospel things the way it should be still here you are listening wanting to learn Wanting to put those things right. Because that's the work of the spirit of the life of Christ within you. That's what he's doing in you right now. If you're in Christ Jesus. Many of you have, you have a deep longing that the children amongst us, your children, will grow up to know Christ. To know this gospel truth. To know, to know it all. To know Christ even better than you do, to serve him more faithfully than you do. And that burns within your soul because you're no longer under the old governing principle. The spirit of life in Christ is in you. Because where does all that come from? Weak though you may feel. All of that and so much more is due to the conquering power of this new governing principle at work within your life, overthrowing your old sinful nature. God is doing that by his Spirit in Christ Jesus. And all of this is originating in the Father. You can't fail to notice in these opening verses of chapter 8 how all three persons of the Godhead are presented to us as Paul progresses from one truth to the next, using this word for to show the link that there is in these progressive thoughts that he brings us, the progressive nature of what God has done in the life of the Christian. How is it that any Christian can actually manage to walk according to the Spirit? It's because the Spirit Himself dwells within you to become the governing, regulating principle over your life. But how did that even happen? All of this has its origin in God the Father verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do in the flesh, God did by sending his own son. When a sinner is confronted by the law of God, and here we're, we're talking again primarily about the moral law of God, that summary of God's law as we find it in the Ten Commandments, That law is very powerful in being able to convince and convict and persuade so that you know this is the truth. What it does not contain, however, on its own, is the power that you need to be able to obey it and to live it out. The law doesn't contain that on its own and of itself. Your sinful nature resists God's law. Your sinful nature rejects God's law. Perhaps your sinful nature has even laughed at God's law. God's law on its own is weak through the flesh. God's law cannot impart the required strength that you need in order to obey. Something else is required but God provides that something else. The completed work of Christ is what enables God to impart this work of his spirit to you. Christ came, says Paul, in the likeness of our flesh. Jesus experienced life in this sinful world. In a very similar way to which you and I experience life in this sinful world. Yet, of course, with this one substantial difference, he remained without sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew what it was to be tempted, just like you do. There is a sense in which Jesus knew what it was to feel the pull of sin... And yet, not one sinful thought ever crossed his mind. Not one sinful motive ever dwelt within his heart. All that he ever thought and felt and said and did was perfectly righteous and good and holy. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yet he remained without sin. Of course, he's unique in that. There is none like him in that. And in his death and resurrection, he conquered sin in the flesh. He was victorious over it. He never once gave in to it during his earthly life. He never once was overtaken by it or overcome by it in his earthly life. And all of yours was nailed on the cross in him and through him. And then he sends his spirit to dwell within you. God sends the spirit of his faithful, obedient, all-conquering, all-victorious Son, the one who lived in the likeness of your flesh but remained without sin, The one in whom only righteousness dwells. The one in whom the Father is well pleased. And by the Spirit, this Christ dwells within you to bring to you that enabling that you need to break the chains of sin in your life. God did it. Now we read in verse 4, the requirement of the law still stands. The kind of life that pleases God, the only kind of life which pleases God, is a life lived according to his law, according to his moral code. And it's in your new, regenerated state as a born-again believer, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, that you now begin to live That kind of life, walking according to the Spirit of God who is in you. It's something which, as Dr. Steve Lawson very helpfully says, has to be done intentionally, it has to be done continually, it has to be done humbly before God, it has to be done obediently, and it has to be done prayerfully. Glance ahead to verse 5 that we'll begin with next time. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is an unavoidable product of being a Christian. That's what the Spirit produces within you. In every situation, In every circumstance, at all times of the day, with meekness and submission of heart and mind and will, actively seeking out God's will and God's way in his word, and doing it. That sounds familiar. Where did we hear that? Ah, yes, Jesus said that this morning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount pleading the Lord's help. He's already put his spirit within you. Why would he not help you? Cry out to him. Beseech him. Acknowledge your weakness and cry out for the Lord's help. You can't pull this off in your own strength, but God doesn't require that of you. These opening four verses explain Why that inner battle that we looked at last week takes place. God's spirit goes to war with your old sinful nature. These verses explain how you may engage in this battle. By means of Christ's spirit who dwells within you. These verses explain how it is that you may be victorious in this battle. Just like it was in the Old Testament. You remember those great stories in the Old Testament where Israel had to fight off their foes on the battlefield? What's the the great theme there? When Israel truly sought the Lord, when they humbled themselves to seek his face, to plead his help, to ask for his wisdom. Just like you need to do. What, what's the constant theme that comes out there? The battle and the victory is the Lord's. It's his doing. Yeah, Israel were out on the battlefield wielding the sword. But the battle was the Lord's. And the Lord gave them victory. And so, whenever Israel were in a good place with God, the first thing they did was to bow before him and give him all the worship and give him all the thanks and give him all the praise because the battle and the victory belongs to the Lord. That's you, Christian, today as you walk according to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The battle and the victory is God's in you, through you, as his child, as his servant, as his instrument in this wicked world. This new ruling, regulating principle has taken hold of you has taken over you if you are a child of God. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Paul does not say the spirit of life in Christ Jesus could make you free. He doesn't say he might make you free. He says if you are a Christian, he has done it. It's a reality. It is done in you by the indwelling Spirit of Christ. So, walk in the Spirit. Intentionally, continually, humbly, obediently, prayerfully. Brothers and sisters, this is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian does.